Hello, hello! Welcome back to Loki's Librarian. I am your librarian, Katrina. If you are new here, welcome. This is where I am reading through the enormous library books that you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and I tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, excuse me, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. I just remember to have to charge my phone because my charger's dead. I'm going to use the one in my office. This week we are finishing up the rather depressing history of the American Civil War with the last chapters of Battle Cry of Freedom by James McPherson. The accompanying cocktail is called Sherman's Revenge, which is two and a half ounces of rye, one ounce of cream sherry, one dash of orange bitters, and three orange twists flamed. Playing with fire today, people. Like literal fire. Let's see what happens. So let's do this. When uh, we left off last week, McClellan had just been sacked by Lincoln, with Grant being placed in charge of the army overall. In the first several years of the war, Grant had impressed Lincoln as a man who would A, fight, and B, get done. In Malice Towards None, the author there described Grant as the one general Lincoln had who never complained that he didn't have enough men's or men or supplies. I mean, Grant knew where he fell short, he knew Lincoln knew where everything was short, and he knew that the entire army was beset by these same problems. So Grant didn't complain about them. He found solutions, which is an endearing trait to have for managers everywhere. Let me say two and a half ounces of rye. His solutions were very pragmatic. He tended to live off the land, which meant as the Union Army started to working their way through the South, they raided everywhere they went, pulling their supplies from the already starving Southerners. Uh, this, by the way, is very effective at weakening the enemy. It is not effective if you want to win the hearts and minds of those you are conquering. Just generally, or if you're stealing their already low supplies, they're going to kind of think you're a bastard. I kind of feel like these roving band of northern raiders might be why the South still refers to it as the War of Northern Aggression. That's probably part of the reason. It's not all of it, but that's part of the reason. So... Putting Grant in charge of the armies overall was nothing short of a stroke of genius. Uh, this new tactic of forging as the army foraging as the army moved allowed Union armies to move, and they made some major miles during that time. Um, at least Grant's army did. And while there were many battles in 1863 that were won by the Union, the two that seemed to have a decisive impact on morale for both sides, um, that completely denigrated morale in the South, and the North took it as a sign from God that they were on the right track, were the siege at Vicksburg, Mississippi, and the Battle of Gettysburg. So the siege of Vicksburg is exactly that. Grant's army rolled up on Vicksburg, and they held it siege for a few weeks, I think, until uh, General Pemberton, yes, General Pemberton surrendered Vicksburg. I've never had sherry before. It's very sticky. I've used it in cooking, but I've never just had sherry. Apparently, it's quite popular. What did I say? One ounce? Well, it's a little more than an ounce. Oh, well. It is what it is. Now, the other one being Gettysburg. General Meade was the Union officer in charge at Gettysburg, and just from the limited descriptions provided in this book, and he describes it, but it's limited. It kind of has to be for space. It's already an 862-page book. But... I can see why the scope of this battle was, why this one in particular kind of captures the imagination, because there are so many what-ifs that could have changed the course of this battle, and it went exactly the way it did in the Union won, but there are so many what-ifs that just a hair different, and the South would have won, and the fate of the nation could have been very different. 
and it's one of those pivotal historical battles that has been analyzed ad nauseum. There are entire books written solely on the Battle of Gettysburg. And this is one of those stand-up battles that was fought literally between titans. I mean, on the north you had General Meade uh, commanding, and in the south you had General Lee, who for once had brought the fight to the north. I mean, seriously, the vast majority of Civil War battles were, were fought in southern states, not in Virginia, which I went over last week, but a lot of them, most of them were fought in southern states. I think Kentucky and West Virginia were the, the two Union states that had the most battles fought in them. Everything else was pretty much fought south of that. Kind of proves the lie of the South's offensive defensive strategy. I mean, more likely the South wanted to go on the offensive to defend their homes, but were prohibited from doing so by the aggression of the North. So I mean, that's probably the other reason it's called the War of Northern Aggression. Now, Gettysburg. This one battle killed off 51,000 troops. Okay, that's 23,000 of the Union troops, which was about a quarter of the Union strength at that tight time. 28,000 in the South, which is about a third of the, of the Southern troops. One, well, it's supposed to be one dash. I suspect I got two in there, but whatever. It's going to be a little orangey. That's okay. The flaming orange twist should sort of explain that anyways. And I already... Well, we're going to see how well I can flame these. Okay, I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing here. I don't know what this is supposed to do. It's not catching fire, which I guess it's not supposed to. There we go. Oh, stirred. This is a stirred one, not a shaken one. So let me stir this really quick. To put that in perspective, that's the population of Carson City, Nevada, uh, which is the state capital of Nevada. For those of you who think it's Vegas, you're wrong. It's Carson City. Population gone over three days. Antelope, California, Grapevine, Texas, all have similar populations. Those cities singularly would be gone over the course of three days. I really got to get one of those double strainers. I don't have one yet. I'm just, it's like low on my list of things to buy these days. This is a coupe glass. It's not big enough to hold all that liquor. It should be, it should hold like six ounces, but it's not, it's barely holding the three and a half I've got in there. That's right full up. And I have to flame this last twist in there too. I should be twisting it over here to get the oils in there, not. Well, I'm not flaming it now. It's got alcohol all over it. I'll just leave that one unflamed. With Gettysburg and, and Vicksburg, with those two decisive incidents, any remaining trace of hope that the South had of being recognized as its own nation in Europe was gone. They're like, nope, we only back winners, and uh, you guys are not winners. And so they stopped back, like, like the diplomatic ties were gone with the South at that point. Now, unquestionably, one of the things that contributed to the North winning was that it started allowing the enlistment of black soldiers in 1863. Uh, now, understand, 1863 were about halfway through the war. By the time when they started allowing them to enlist, that was, we, we had about two years left of the war, although obviously nobody knew that at the time. And by the end of the war, 179,000 free men and former slaves, uh, contrabands, which is what they called the, the confiscated slaves from the southern estates as the north rolled over them. They'd pick up all these slaves and they called them contrabands. They would be enlisted into the Union. They would constitute about 10% of Union forces. So 10% of Union forces in over two years, 179,000. And they fought very well, which seemed to surprise the North. I don't know why, but the, well, okay, I do know why, because the North was every bit as racist as the South. Uh, they definitely had their own problems. Like I said, the, Lincoln himself, when he started running for president, 
didn't think they should be slaves, but did not think black people were equal to white. And so they were surprised when they fought well, but whatever. Let's try this. It's not, it's not bad. Rye whiskey is an acquired taste, and I haven't quite acquired that. You know, I do like whiskey, but rye is a little on the rough side. It, it's not as finished, it's not as aged, and so it's not as smooth. I'm, I probably could have gone with a, a, an older rye whiskey, but I went with this one because it's what I had. It's not bad, but it's definitely rough. This isn't a horrible taste, it's just got a tiny bit of an afterburn. The flavor's okay, though. Maybe if I could have flamed that last orange twist, it would have tasted differently, but it's okay. It's okay. The South was not amused by the acceptance of black troops. Uh, they seemed to think this, this like, well, everything the North did pissed them off, but this was a particular taunt. They, they really were aggravated by this. And consequently, they were particularly vicious to black soldiers who were caught. Uh, depending on the mood of the Confederate troops during the catching, doing the catching, the black soldiers might be executed on the spot, or they might be returned to slavery, or placed in slavery for the first time ever in the case of those who had been born free in the North. Lincoln tried to curtail this tendency uh, by basically stop, he, well, first off, he stopped the prisoner exchange, unless the South returned black prisoners too. He's like, well, we're not going to exchange you anybody unless you treat all of our troops as equal and you return the, the, our black troops to us as well. And since the South wanted, you know, the slaves, they were like, no, we're not going to do that. So that, that put a kibosh on any prisoner exchange at that point forward. And when he found out that the Confederate Congress had passed laws that black soldiers who were captured were to be executed, Lincoln let it be known that if that happened, the North would start executing on a one-for-one -one basis Confederate soldiers. Now, as a result of this, officially, the South did not execute black soldiers, meaning if a black soldier made it to a prison camp, they were not executed specifically because they were black. In reality, few have ever made it to a prison camp. I mean, Andersonville was an absolute shit show. He does go over Andersonville a little bit. Um, for those of you who don't know, that was the South's prison camp in Alabama? Might have been Mississippi. I'll look it up. But it, it, Andersonville was an absolute shit show. They, they were not equipped for that many people for, for the influx of Northern prisoners. And a lot of them died of starvation and exposure and disease. Andersonville was awful. Uh, most black soldiers didn't make it to Andersonville. Most of them were executed when they were caught. And I had no way to prove that's what's going on, so it just kind of became this tension spot. But he does cover, because, I mean, how could you not, right? The 54th Regiment of Massachusetts, which was the first all-black regiment in the Civil War, uh, excepting the commanding officer, who was Colonel Robert Goldshaw. Um, Civil War buffs who are undoubtedly familiar with the movie Glory, which also tells this story, and how the South, thinking they were degrading Shaw, buried him in a mass grave with his men. And Shaw, he was from a proud abolitionist family in Massachusetts. They 100% were on that abolish, you know, blacks are equal. They, they, they weren't just abolitionists. I think they didn't genuinely believe that, that black people were equal. And so when the North found out that Shaw had been buried in this mass grave, the North tried to reclaim the body. And Shaw's father said, no, nah, we hold that it's, this is a quote, direct quote, which means this is something written down historically somewhere. We hold that a soldier's most appropriate burial place is on the field where he has fallen, including, well, he didn't say this part. That's the end quote. But that certainly means he believed his son was buried where he should be with the men he died beside, which is noble given the time and given how endemic racism was on both sides of the divide. Now, 
as the 1864 campaign season. So Gettysburg, Vicksburg, all of that was 1863. So 1863 was kind of a pivotal turning point in the war. Um, from that point on, the South's literal only hope they had of possibly pulling it out was that Lincoln would not be reelected. And Lincoln thought it was hit and miss too. He, first off, he wasn't at all sure he was going to get the nomination. He did, obviously, but he wasn't sure he would. When he did get the nomination, it wasn't at all sure that he would win because McClellan was the, the, his opposing side. McClellan, uh, General George McClellan ran as the Democratic candidate. Now, it wasn't even close. Lincoln won with like 212 electoral votes to the 21 that <laughs> McClellan got. So he's landslide, seriously. But they couldn't know that. So as they, and so his, Lincoln's hope was basically, let's just keep winning. As the 1864 campaign season starts heating up, Grant sends Sherman to take Atlanta. I, and I don't think that Lincoln was strictly on board at first with their plan, but he was talked into it by Grant because he trusted Grant, and it ended up being quite a good plan. Um, everybody knows about Grant's march on Atlanta and then the destruction that he wrought all through Georgia. And man, or, I'm sorry, Sherman, if... The South thought that Grant's living off the land was hard on supplies. Sherman must have seemed like a horde of biblical locusts descending on Georgia. And when Grant rolled through, he took the supplies, but he was leaving an occupation force behind him, so he kind of left some railways open, some supply lines open. He needed to leave an avenue of escape if things went badly. And so, and, and that was one thing that definitely worked to the South's advantage, if you can believe it, because while they're leaving these occupation forces behind, their fighting troops are getting smaller and smaller because they're losing them to the occupation. Uh, and that made the South's battles mm, a little more vigorous. They, they were able to do a lot more damage to the Union because the Union weren't bringing as many men to fight. They were leaving them to occupy. Um, but Sherman, he didn't just take the food. He destroyed railroads and supply lines behind him. When he destroyed Atlanta, it, it, all of their supplies were wiped out because Atlanta had become the manufacturing hub of wartime goods during the for the Confederacy. So when he destroyed all of that, he destroyed their munitions plants and everything. That scene from Gone with the Wind where, you know, they're fleeing the burning of Atlanta is not too far off, okay? I mean, yes, it's Hollywood, but it really isn't too far off that Sherman was destroying the munitions depots. And what he didn't destroy was certainly destroyed by the Rebs who were fleeing because they didn't want to leave those supplies for the enemy. So Atlanta was an absolute nightmare. And after that, they just kept rolling to the sea and destroyed everything in their path. So yeah, swarm of locusts and they, they demolished Georgia. And after that, they turned to South Carolina. Now, the Union troops really wanted South Carolina because for good or for ill, they blamed South Carolina for this entire mess because South Carolina was the first to secede. The first shots fired had been Fort Sumter at South Carolina. And so they blamed South Carolina and they took their vengeance on that state. <laughs> now Jefferson Davis at this point, his whole hope, like I said, was that a Democrat would win. And when that didn't happen, about the only person who didn't know the war was over at this point was Jefferson Davis and, and, and the Confederate Congress. Right? Like Everybody else was done at this point. They're like, can we just go back? Can we just go join the Union and call this square? And they dug their feet in and were like, no, this is where we're sticking this out. We can still win. We still have Robert E. Lee. And in March of 1865... March of 1865, 
they went ahead and authorized the conscription of black troops in the South. Now, the North had been thinking about it from the start, and obviously it took him two years to do it, but the South came to that party a wee bit late because March of 1865, they authorized it, and April 9th, 1865, like two weeks after the authorization, Lee surrendered the Army of Northern Virginia to General Grant at Appomattox Courthouse. Um, more specifically, and you can't help but feel sorry for this poor bastard, in the living room of one Wilmer McLean. Now, Wilmer McLean is a unique person in history, and let me tell you why. So the war starts in 1861, and the first major battle outside of Fort Sumter was at Manassas. And at the Battle of Manassas, a Yankee shell crashed through his dining room for Wilmer McLean. So he packed and moved his entire house to Appomattox, trying to avoid the war. Only to have Lee surrender in his living room. So he was kind of the Alpha and Omega. I mean, not that he started it, but he was there at the beginning and at the end. And this was kind of an interesting quote from the book, because there, in, and this is a direct quote, there in McLean's parlor, the son of an Ohio tanner dictated surrender terms to the scion of a first family of Virginia. Now, one might argue that Lee was the scion of the first family of Virginia, given that Robert E. Lee was the son of a Revolutionary War hero who had been a trusted aide to General George Washington, and that family connection led Lee to marry the daughter of Washington's adopted son, Washington never had any children of his own. His adopted son was the legal son of one Martha Dandridge Custis Washington. So he was grandson, grandson-in-law to George Washington, first president, so arguably the first family of Virginia. So there was a very strong tie there. And given that, that Grant was the son of a tanner, which is I mean, basically, you know, they made leather goods, right? That goes to show that no matter what station you were born to in America, you can always work your way up. Remember, Grant goes on to become president after this. This book was quite comprehensive and informative, but you got to give yourself plenty of time to read it and absorb the information. I mean, 862 pages, it took me, well, it took me four weeks to read it, but I was sick for one of those, so we'll say three weeks. And I can read fast, right? I can usually read a 500-page book in a week, and that's nothing. But this one, just it's, it's a lot of information, a lot of detail, a lot to absorb. But it was comprehensive. It didn't just cover the battles. Um, and there are those, right? I mean, the, the, like I said, the American Civil War is one of those conflicts that has entire books dedicated to single battles, not just Gettysburg, but there's books dedicated to Shiloh. There's books dedicated to Manassas. There's books dedicated to Vicksburg. So all the major engagements have individual books dedicated to them. Um, and as I said in, during my posting on, on uh, President Polk, the generals who fought at the Mexican-American War were a who's who of Civil War generals. So each of those generals has a book written about them. You can read a book specifically on William Tecumseh Sherman or specifically on Ulysses S. Grant, which I'll be doing because he was also a president. You can read a book on General Meade or on Robert E. Lee. Each of them has books dedicated to them. Uh, there are books dedicated to single units like the 54th Massachusetts because the scope of this war was so huge. Um, and there's a Wikipedia page that has a list of American Civil War battles that were fought in the order of the fighting. Um, I mean, when all is said and done, more than 620,000 soldiers lost their lives. That's like the population of northern Nevada. 
Like you could lop off um, uh, Las Vegas and the rest of the state was gone over the course of four years. That's just the soldiers. That is not counting the civilian casualties during the war. Uh, the people who either starved to death or died as a result of, of bombing. And now, with the reading that I've been doing on the presidents up to this point, I have no doubt that the Civil War would have been fought eventually. Because the books on the presidents don't just cover the president's specific timeline, it also covers the politics of their own era. And all of the politics say that this, this was going to happen. It, I mean, the matter of slavery was the elephant in the room from the moment the Declaration of Independence was signed. Before we were even a nation, it was the elephant in the room. Um, and it wasn't lost on a, on a great many people, the irony of fighting for freedom while keeping half of humanity enslaved. That was a guaranteed powder keg, and it was a can that they just kept kicking down the road as far as it could go. I mean, let's just for a second pretend that Lincoln had allowed the South to secede peacefully. All right, South Carolina jumps ship, the other states jump ship. Lincoln says, okay, we're, this isn't a fight worth having. You guys go do you. Peace be with you. We're done, right? we would have fought the war eventually anyways, because there's no way in hell that we wouldn't have had a fight over runaway slaves, right? Because they would have jumped ship. The, the, the Underground Railroad was very much a thing. They'd have run to the North. And at that point, the North would have said, no, you're not part of our nation anymore. We're under no obligation to return these slaves to you. And we're a free nation, so... So we would have had a fight over that. We might have had a fight over the South wanting to expand West, right? I mean, at that point in time, only, I mean, Texas seceded, but everything West of that, so Arizona, New Mexico, the Southern part of California, all of that would have stayed with the Union, but eventually the South would have wanted to expand that way too. And there would have been, there could have been a war fought over that. So eventually we would have had this conflict. All Lincoln did was ensure that it happened on his watch, that he didn't let it get that far. Uh, which is good, because the next president could just have easily been a Democrat who just wanted to appease the South, and they might have granted territory, or tried to bowl through laws that said, no, we should play nice with our Southern neighbors and return those slaves regardless. So this this was going to happen. All right? I, I, I don't think there's any way that this particular battle could have been avoided, short of the Founding Fathers saying, we're not allowing slavery, period. And that certainly was an option, but a, a large chunk of them owned slaves. I, it's it's not a proud moment in American history, but it's certainly there, and you can't pretend it didn't exist. So the Founding Fathers are the ones who kicked that can down the road, and thanks a lot for that, guys. But that's where we're at. It, it is ironic, though, and I'm not joking about that. There were several Confederate Congress critters who sought to rejoin the Union when it became obvious the Union was winning based on the original U.S. Constitution. They were like are bad, but we'd love to come back, but we still want to keep our slaves. And by that time, the 13th Amendment had passed, and Lincoln was like, no. You guys are more than welcome back, but we already made Louisiana, Arkansas, and what was the other state? Was it Missouri? Tennessee. Louisiana, Arkansas, and Tennessee. We went, when we took over them and made them rejoin the Union, we made them get rid of slavery. So if you want to come back, you've got to lose your slaves, too. That's just, that's how it's going to be. And so it fought its way out to the bitter end. This was a good book, but it was a lot of information. There's a lot to unpack in here. Um, there's a reason all those books about individual battles and individual generals exist. 
and it's because there was a lot of information surrounding the American Civil War. Um, people, like I said, tend to think that moments in history happen in a vacuum. Clearly they don't. Like I said, this the Civil War was predicted from the time that we signed the Declaration of Independence. Before we were even a nation, we could have predicted the Civil War was going to happen. It, it was just that that's powder keg of information just waiting to explode. Um, I would recommend this book for anybody who thinks that a second civil war in America is a good idea. Uh, it's not. It, it was awful enough with the technology they had in the 19th century. It would be exponentially worse with the 21st century tech. I mean, civil wars have happened all over the planet in the intervening 170 years. 70 years? Yeah. 160 years. 160 years. Um... 10 out of 10 Civil War survivors would not recommend it. The survivors of the American Civil War probably didn't recommend it. I mean, they're all dead now, but I do recommend this book. And uh, that's it for this week. If you liked what you saw, don't forget to hit that subscribe button, and I will see you guys later. Bye.